millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... We're on Making the Myths of Our Gendered Minds with Cordelia Fine and her latest book, Testosterone Rex. And then we're taking a look at the curious history of dating with Nikki Hodgson. Cordelia Fine is a professor of the history and philosophy of science at the University of Melbourne. She is the author of the much acclaimed A Mind of Its Own and Delusions of Gender, which we've talked about in a previous Little Atoms a few years ago, described as a truly startling book by The Independent, funny, droll, yet deeply serious by The New Scientist, and an important book, as enjoyable as it is timely and interesting, by The West Australian. And Cordelia's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is Testosterone Rex, Unmaking the Myths of Our Gendered Minds. Cordelia, welcome back. Thank you. Tell me what the idea is behind Testosterone Rex. Well, everyone knows Testosterone Rex. He's a very familiar part of our sort of everyday thinking and conversation. So I use the nickname Testosterone Rex to refer to this very familiar idea that risk-taking competitive masculinity has evolved in males in order to enhance their reproductive success and that it's therefore wired into the male brain and fueled by testosterone. And the reason I like the, the phrase testosterone rex to refer to this sort of well-known interconnected set of beliefs is really for two reasons. So one is that by referring to rex or king-like properties, it refers to the fact that this well-known story seems to give us an explanation for why it is that even in our contemporary Western 21st century societies, men are still more likely on average to have uh, you know, wealth and power than women. And the second reason is that the sort of set of beliefs on which testosterone rex is based is based on outdated science. So the science in the relevant areas from evolutionary biology, from understanding of hormone behaviour relations, of sex differences in the brain, uh, they've all moved on a lot. And basically testosterone rex from a scientific perspective is extinct. The idea itself that is sort of central to this idea of sex differences, as, as you just described, that, you know, men, they cheaply make sperm, therefore it makes sense for them to be wasteful with it, to try and mate as much as possible. And for women who have a limited amount of, of eggs, therefore they should be more careful. Plus, it's also much more men basically do their one little part in procreation and then they can disappear, whereas, you know, it takes up a lot more of women's time and energy and then 
also once a vulnerable baby is born, obviously they need support. So therefore, all of those things suggest that they should be more cautious and careful. It's an idea that seems so plausible. It's like common sense. From a scientific perspective, let's talk about where that idea first comes from. And you talk about a guy called Angus Bateman. Tell us what he did. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there there is a sort of very appealing uh, logic to what you've just described. And, you know, I'll just probably start by saying that it's a logic that does seem to sort of shape the dynamics of many species. So it's not that these things aren't relevant. But what Angus Bateman did was he really... Uh, I mean, the original idea of sexual selection came from Darwin, obviously, but he didn't sort of really elaborate the, the mechanism behind it about, you know, why the peacock had this, you know, elaborate, elaborate feathery tail and why females didn't and why, according to his observations, it seemed to be the males who would sort of compete more ferociously than mates than females. And what Angus Bateman did was, I mean, it was a really very interesting experiment. So what he did was he looked at it, um, he put fruit flies into jars and he wanted to look at this idea that male reproductive success uh, benefits more from multiple matings than female reproductive success which is a very familiar idea to us now but at the time was you know quite novel and you know he was doing this work back in the middle of the last century didn't have paternity testing so he had he had a sort of quite an awkward way of trying to work out how many mates a particular um, male or female fruit fly had had and he had to rely on using um, mutated flies and then trying to sort of infer parentage from the pattern of uh, mutations and of course some flies didn't survive and so there turned out to be some biases in you know it just through the sheer sort of uh, technical issues of the experiment it, it wasn't it was necessarily biased and but what's interesting about the study was first of all it was a sort of groundwork of this idea that male reproductive success increases more than females from multiple matings. But what's also interesting is when Patricia Gowty, who's a sort of contemporary evolutionary biologist, went back to look at the study, she she sort of found some interesting things. So she sort of took account of the bias that was in the study and found that actually there wasn't a sort of strong statistical basis for saying that female reproductive success didn't also increase from multiple matings and this has led to uh, or is compatible with I should say kind of growing interest in evolutionary biology of the benefits to females from promiscuity uh, and another point that was made uh, was that actually when you look at the when you look at the actual data you find that Bateman did his uh, studies in a number of different series and in some of the series he actually did find that females uh, reproductive success did increase with multiple matings as far as they could tell. So he actually already <laughs> had found the first evidence, surprising evidence of um, reproductive advantage from multiple mating. Um, but I think because, as you say, it's such a logically compelling idea, it was very, it was a very powerful paradigm for a long time. And as I said, there are many species to which uh, this does seem to apply. But what's really been changing in evolutionary biology is the recognition that there are many other kinds of factors involved so that reproduction isn't as cheap as one thinks for males. It's not just a single sperm that they're they're putting in. There's sort of time, effort, cost and so on. And there are potential benefits of promiscuity from females in terms of, you know, sperm competition, of disguising paternity, all sorts of other ideas being put forward. What's really changed is this recognition that across the animal kingdom, two things. One, there's just quite a lot of 
diversity. So it's not just sort of if you've got sperm and your reproduction is cheap in terms of your gametes, then you're going to be competitive. And if you if reproduction is relatively expensive, you're going to be monogamous or chaste. So there's a lot of diversity because there's so many other factors are involved. But I think this other second really important thing is that these sex roles can actually be quite dynamic, even within a species. So because it's not doesn't just come down to cheap sperm, expensive egg or expensive gestation and lactation, when the ecology or the social environment changes, the sex roles can change too. So for example, there's a species of field cricket where in the sort of usual course of events, the females are actually competitive. The reason being that the males provide them with these sort of nutritious sperm packets. And so that makes um, reproduction relatively expensive for the males. So that sort of fits with the Bateman view. But when there's pollen around, plenty of pollen around in the environment, whether it's sort of naturally or when the, the sort of experimenter provides it, the females actually sort of sit back and relax and we won't bother anymore. So um, the point being that, you know, whatever is sort of wired in, even these sort of very fundamental core business of sex is sex, right, reproduction. And even this is can be quite dynamic depending on other factors going on. I'm Natalie Haynes. You're listening to Resonance FM. And this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You spend some time in the book looking at the the statistical feasibility of this idea that, you know, some random hunter-gatherer guy back in the day could set out upon a mission to sleep with hundreds and hundreds of people and therefore produce hundreds and hundreds of offspring and how unlikely that actually is. Right, right, right. Yeah. So look, I, so I think what I start, what I start to do in the book is because it's such a powerful idea, right? But it breaks down at so many different levels. So the sort of things go, look, even in the animal kingdom, the non-human animal kingdom, I should say, there's diversity and there's there's a very dynamic aspect to sex roles, at least in some species. So that's the first thing. And then you start to look at humans and, and, and the, the, yeah, as you say, the interesting thing about humans and also actually primates too, though, to a lesser degree, is that we actually have a lot of non reproductive sex so in many animals sex is very tightly bound to hormonal control and what that means is that basically animals are only having sex at a time when reproduction or you know conception is really likely it's timed quite tightly so that you're not kind of wasting time and energy and taking risks of sex if reproduction isn't going to have a really good chance of occurring because everyone's sort of fertile right but that's not the case in primates and particularly not the case in ourselves so more than any other species we just have a huge amount of non you know sex that doesn't result in conception and couldn't result in conception either because it's taking place at the sort of in quotes wrong time of the menstrual cycle for the female or the female is not in a period of life when she's in a reproductive stage or even you're having sex with someone who's the same sex as you and therefore reproduction's not going to take place or you're having sex in a way that it can't result in pregnancy so we have we have all kinds of sexual activity that doesn't or even can't result in reproduction and that really sort of challenges this idea that you know that hunter can stroll around spreading his seed in a way that's going to really ratchet up his reproductive success at a, at a rate of knots. It would actually be really hard work to achieve those kinds of numbers. You kind of need a whole infrastructure around it, like a harem, a well-managed well, well harem to achieve those dizzying heights. And what you see, and anthropologists see, is, you know, that there's, yeah, there certainly have been societies where males have had sort of much greater 
reproductive variants than females. In other words, you know, some males who are really having a lot of kids. But then there are other societies where that's that's not the case. There's sort of similarity in how many kids men and women are, are producing. And of course, nowadays, a harem, that artificial way of making that situation possible is not a thing that exists. But there are obviously species of animals where a dominant male will take control of a, a large group of, of receptive females. But even in that case, let's talk about how this way that clever and sneaky males are still able to uh, to procreate. Yeah, that's um yeah, that's another <laughs> surprise for the biologists, I think. So um well harems are extremely rare in the in the primate world. Uh, it sounds pretty tiring to me anyway, having one of those. But um uh, but yeah so yeah one of the interesting things that came up was you know, for example, so one example is this um, shorebird, the uh, a sandpiper bird. And you know, on original inspection, it seemed that there was this sort of one dominant male who was having access to all the females. And you think, okay, well, that's you know, this is a reason for him to really put everything into becoming the dominant male because there's such a reproductive return from it. But it turned out that you know, with the advent of capacity for biologists to use paternity testing, uh, they were able to see there was all sort of sneaky stuff going on. Behind the scenes that actually the um, the biologists had managed to miss because when they did the paternity testing on the baby birds they found that actually the females had somehow been having sex with all kinds of sort of you know number of non-dominant birds uh, males and so they're actually more fathers than mothers in this particular scenario so what looked at first as like the sort of typical top I'm going to say top dog bird, but that's a bit of a confusing expression, top bird, king bird, uh, having all the uh, reproductive success. The reality was that it was, um, you know, even the sort of non-dominant birds were, were doing just as well. So, yeah, even these sort of examples from the animal kingdom that seem to be sort of very much fit with that original Bateman view turn out to be much more complicated. And let's look at some examples in the animal kingdom where where we're now actually starting to study and discover that promiscuity itself is a useful tactic for the females as well. I mean, you talk in the book about the uh, rather famous story, I think now, of the uh, the hedge sparrows, the, the, you know, the humble dunnock and what it does. But also I'd, I'd like to talk about Sarah Hardy's work in, in studying the langurs. Yeah, that's right. So she, I think she was, you know, it was really a sort of seminal, if you'll excuse the word, <laughs> in this context, um, seminal observation that she made was that she was watching these female langurs and noticing that they were actually sort of heading out of their own troop and taking the risks of going to uh, sort of outsider all-male troops and essentially soliciting sex from them. And I think one of the really nice things about her observations is she's saying that, you know, she's, it was just something that she, she hadn't, she'd been trained to think that such a thing couldn't occur. So it was sort of, you know, I sort of quote this thing that anthropologists likes to say which was if I hadn't believed it I wouldn't have seen it so this idea that you know how this sort of observations in the wild are being perceived is through the lens of your particular paradigm and assumptions that you're working from um, but yeah that was such an important moment in uh, evolutionary biology and our understanding of these dynamics that okay these females are soliciting kind of extra extra pair sexual activity so there must be some benefit to it because it is quite a costly activity so and I don't think there's probably going to be a single story for the benefits of promiscuity that applies to every species is going to be different I'm sure and complex and you know contingent on situational factors but um, yeah it was a, it was part of this sort of breaking down of this sperm achieve 
therefore only males uh, need to be promiscuous. But I think this takes us back to your point about the fact that in humans we have this a lot of non-reproductive sex, which is that this points to, you know, because that brings risks, you know, it's it's time and energy you could be devoting somewhere else. It's also, you know, risks of diseases and so on. So there must be some benefit to it. So people are saying, look, there must be some other kind of purpose to sex, probably a kind of re- something relational. And so we need to sort of expand our view a bit from this idea that sex is purely about reproduction it's about bringing together reproductive potentials and that it's it's a much more relational process in primates but also most particularly in ourselves well just expanded on that i just want to want to finish off this part looking at other factors that come into play as well in in sort of sexual selection and you talk about the high status female chimpanzees and how almost like you know social class almost like the situation the social situation that they're in and the conditions that they're living in compared to lower status females also plays a part in their the success rate of their reproduction yeah that's right and so that's another part of the sort of um the original story that's also been breaking down is that for a long time the idea was look any female can kind of achieve the mediocre feat of getting herself impregnated by an eager male so why would females need to compete but you know obviously the reality is much more complicated than that for one thing females might be competing for males and they have to also in the case of mammals they actually need considerable resources to to rear their young as you alluded to before so particularly among mammals, there's sort of growing evidence of the importance of rank and resources for female reproductive success as well, which actually makes a lot of sense. If, you, if you've if you got higher rank and you've got better access to resources, well, that's going to be beneficial for you if you're for this very expensive process, biologically expensive process, <laughs> actually expensive in the case of humans, um, of, of, raising, um, of raising offspring. And um, you know, not, this is not to say that, well, we're closely related to chimpanzees, so we must be just like them, but it's all part of this breaking down of this um, very powerful story of men, males are across the animal kingdom with a very few rare defined exceptions. Males are the ones who need to be competitive. That is not as, and, and then to say that something is different for humans is sort of like a special pleading for an exceptional case. It's the actual across the animal kingdom. The pattern is much more diverse and complex. But actually, just to give you an example of how powerful that this sort of link between our minds, between maleness and competition and territory, a few years ago, and it's actually when I was writing this book, we decided that we'd like to get a kitten to keep our cat company. So uh, the kids and I drove out to the RSPCA shelter, uh, you know, where they have, you know, rehouse animals. And they told us that we couldn't take a kitten because the cat that we already had, they knew about the cat because they'd given her to us as well, our female cat, Pippi. They said she'll, you know, she'll brutalize any kitten that you bring onto her territory. And, you know, we were just sort of shocked (laughs) by this. And I think it's because we just, that link between being territorial and sort of, you know, defending your resources against another animal, you know, is so strongly linked with maleness in kind of popular imagination that the idea that our female cat might also be this kind of brutal uh, competitive killer just simply hadn't occurred to us. And we had to go home empty handed and quite disappointed. We almost came home with a goat instead, but thank God we didn't. But um, yeah, but I think it's just a real example of, you know, even despite the fact that I was writing this book at the time, this is this very compelling story that in evolutionary biology is just being 
you know, all these assumptions are being thrown out of the, out of the window. That the underlying logic, it's not that the underlying logic was wrong, but there are just so, so many other factors involved. It's much, much more complicated. Listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Cordelia Fine, and we've been talking about testosterone wrecks and making the myths of our gendered minds. And Cordelia, we've been talking in the first part about the testosterone wrecks myth story. Let's talk for a little bit about testosterone itself, the hormone. So, when did we first start to see it as central to this story, or did we start to believe it was central to the story, I should say? Uh, I think testosterone's been kind of regarded as the hormonal essence of masculinity for a very long time. So, you know, there's one science uh, scientist, Robert Sapolsky, is a wonderful scientist and writer who sort of refers to the first experiment being someone lopping off the testicles of a bull and realising that there's some connection between testosterone and uh, that sort of aggressive behaviour in a bull. So I think, you know, I think this idea has been around for a very long time. What's really been changing over the past few decades, I think, is really this understanding of the complexities and the nuances of testosterone's role in competitive behaviour, both in males and in females, in fact, and the fact that what you see in one species is not necessarily what you're going to see in another. What role does it play in you know the initial formation of the sexes? Right, so it plays a very critical role. So it plays a very critical role um, prenatally in differentiating the reproductive system. So creating, uh, arising from the uh, differentiation of the gonads, so testes versus ovaries, and then those produce um, different amounts of sex hormones at a particular period, and that's a, that plays a critical role in the sort of finishing off of the male versus female reproductive systems. Then testosterone levels are more or less the same until pubescence, and then testosterone, of course, plays a role in kind of masculinizing uh, the physique of males well and of course um, females producing testosterone too and start to develop body hair and things like that um so it's certainly playing a role in physical masculinity uh, for instance and there is an idea that testosterone that testosterone surge prenatally also masculinizes permanently masculinizes brain circuits so sort of creating a male brain versus a female brain in the absence of that testosterone surge uh, and that's been argued to uh, create different predispositions in skills and interests so supposedly explaining sex differences in, in toy interests for example that's something that I looked at um, as you'll remember very closely in delusions of gender and I do come back to it briefly in, in this book too but that that's in humans that's really the sort of the key key roles in testosterone in in animals generally testosterone is seen as sort of being part of competition and so in many animals that's kind of taking place in these circumscribed breeding seasons so you know i mentioned earlier that in many animals breeding takes place sort of under quite tight hormonal control so that it's a very efficient 
process um, so the timing of it sort of synchronized that's not so much the case in primates and, and particularly in ourselves so in humans that's one way that's sort of important way to think of ourselves as being different to many other species is we don't have these kind of defined breeding systems where suddenly we're having to have this brief period where we're fighting for territory fighting for mates and so on that idea of the um the male and female brain again is another very persistent myth isn't it yeah so it's um so in delusions of gender i was i, I would look very much at studies that you know were often based on very small sample sizes so very probably very unreliable results that wouldn't be replicated and that's a it can be a real issue in this area of research and then in the absence of any links to behavior making claims that oh this explains why women are more empathic or this explains why males are better at spatial processing or whatever it is now i think there's there have been sort of interesting changes so the argument there was never that there weren't sex differences in the brain, but rather that ones that were being reported were not necessarily reliable and that we didn't know what they meant in terms of behaviour because it's really complicated to go from, you know, a difference in activity or a structural difference in the brain to some sort of some kind of complex behaviour like empathising or mathematics or something like that. And it was clear that gender stereotypes were very much infusing the speculations about what any such differences might mean. So since then, I think there's or sort of in parallel, there's been a real shift in thinking about the relationship between sex and the brain. So it's actually moved away from this old idea that I mentioned earlier of um, testosterone in particular being something that creates, has a very powerful effect on the brain that creates sort of discrete male circuits and discrete female circuits relating to uh, reproduction and mating. And of course, in humans, we kind of relate all sorts of things to reproduction and mating, not just sort of physical act, but, you know, risk-taking or preference for dolls or a sense of humour or, you know, a propensity to create great art or whatever it is. So, you know, we've linked all sorts of, some people have linked all sorts of things to those kinds of behaviours. But the way the science has changed, it is to see that sex doesn't have the same kind of effect on the reproductive system where it creates, in most cases, though not all, very distinct, non-overlapping and stable reproductive systems. It doesn't have the same effect on the nervous system. So it certainly does influence brain development, but it's just one of many complex interacting factors. So there are genetic, hormonal, epigenetic, environmental factors, all interacting in a dynamic way. And so rather than creating discrete male circuits and female circuits it's creating these kind of mosaics throughout the brain which are pretty idiosyncratic and you know because there are so many influences on them they're also uh, dynamic and changing over time so we've sort of moved away from this idea of sort of sex differences in the brain adding up adding up adding up to create a male brain and a female brain to this idea of characteristics that may be more common in males and in females and vice versa or common in both but people have a mix of these sort of more male typical and more female typical qualities and this was shown by Daphne Joel and colleagues in a paper uh, published in um, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and they demonstrated this mosaicism for the first time in human brains and what it means is it doesn't really make sense to refer to a male brain and a female brain because what would what would that actually be there are the number of people who have kind of consistently male typical or female typical brain characteristics are absolutely in the minority compared to people who 
have a have a mix of characteristics. There's no way of kind of categorizing brains as male or female in a meaningful way. And of course, you mentioned that, you know, obviously environmental pressures as well. As a society, we're constantly bombarded with ideas and messages that tell us this is, you know, from the very simple, as, you, as you've already mentioned, blue toys are for boys and pink toys are for girls. There seems to be no way to escape from that sort of stuff. So the idea that it's like, I don't know, it's not even like, you can't even describe it as the chicken and the egg situation. Oh, do girls like pink toys because they have female brains or are girls more likely to have female brains because they're constantly told that you should have pink toys? Well, one thing I try and convey in the book is a, what I think is a really important shift in developmental biology and evolutionary biology away from this idea that if something an adaptive behavior, something that was important for survival or for reproductive success, must be inherited through the genes. So we have this very strong link in our minds between, you know, adaptive genetic. Um, But actually, developmental biologists have realized, well, it's not just genes that animals inherit, they also inherit this entire developmental system. And that developmental system is something that can, you know, in some cases can be, so this might be things like the actual ecology of where you live. It could be, you know, in the case of mammals, having a mother is going to take care of you for the early years. It's going to have peers around who are going to provide social input and interaction and so on. And, you know, you can just rely on the fact that these things will be there generation after generation. And what developmental biologists realized is that these kind of these are also inherited resources that can be play a really critical role in the development of adaptive traits and what that means is if that non-genetic part of the developmental system changes then so too will either how that adaptive behavior develops and expressed or even where whether it's there at all now we tend to think well that can't be the case for you know, for things to do with reproduction, because, you know, reproduction is so important. It's like, you know, the absolute bottom line in evolution that, you know, something is important. There's that must be inherited through the sex chromosomes and then through the sex hormones. But actually, even in the case of things that are really vital for reproductive success, the environment, things that are inherited in the environment can be really critical. So uh, one really striking example of this is sexual imprinting. So having sex with the right species is really important for reproductive success. You're not going to do that well if you're having sex with an animal that's a different species to you. But it turns out that in sheep and goats, for instance, particularly in males, if those that seems to depend on the mother. So if you cross-foster a baby male lamb to a goat mother and vice versa for a baby male kid, you'll actually find that those lambs and kids grow up to have sexual preferences for the same species as their cross fostered mother so here's something that's really vital for reproductive success but it's actually not wired hardwired into genes but it's actually drawing on something that like in the normal course of events would be reliably inherited generation after generation so the point here is that you know these processes of natural selection can be pretty frugal if there's something in the environment that can provide the relevant developmental input then you know natural selection is going to recruit it it's not going to build in redundancy of putting it into the genes and as you as you point out as humans we have this what, what you know one massive part of our developmental system is this very rich stable culture which always involves information in a sort of myriad of forms about uh, 
gender and gender roles. So we have gender stereotypes and gender attitudes and norms and practices and laws and so on and so forth. So we have this really rich developmental resource that's you know ready and waiting and available to try and you know to guide uh, development towards adaptive roles in terms of in terms of reproduction. And of course, we know that humans, more than any other species, sort of haven't fixed on one single way of pairing and partnering and bringing the next generation into being and it's you know that in itself points to things not being fixed into genes and hormones but of that cultural developmental system playing a really vital role. I'm Caitlin Doty you're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Adams a radio show about ideas and culture. You talk about this book in, in particular. There's this this other myth that comes from a a story that was in the Guardian. I did that was in the Guardian about um, if the Lehman Brothers were the Lehman Sisters, would the you know would the financial crash have happened? Yeah. So this is yeah, as you say, this idea that females are naturally risk averse. Um, and actually, I think this this links us nicely to the question that you asked about testosterone as well, because a lot of the interest has been in well, males are risk taking and females are risk averse and males have lots of testosterone and females have much less testosterone. So, you know, maybe the two are connected. And that's a very kind of intuitive way of thinking about it. And in fact, there's a whole kind of research program, particularly in economics, trying to, you know, identify the role of testosterone and sex differences in testosterone in differences in in risk-taking. But the problem is when you actually look at risk-taking, you don't find something as simple as men are risk-taking, women are risk-averse. You actually find that often women are equally or more likely to take risks in particular domains than men. And what, what seems to, regardless of whether you're male or female, people are quite idiosyncratic in the kinds of risks that they're willing to take. So psychologists used to conceive of risk-taking as this kind of domain general personality trait. So, you know, you either like risk or you don't like risk. And so they'd actually measure it by, you know, asking people, you know, how likely would you be able to take this health risk and how likely would you be able to, would you be to take this financial risk and how likely would you be to take this physical risk and so on. And then it sort of added all up, you know, the assumption being that someone who's likely to take risks in one domain will be likely to take risks in another. And when you're thinking in that way, it does kind of make sense to think of, okay, well, you know, particularly since male risk-taking seems much more visible to us. Okay, so male's going to be much more on the risk-taking side of this continuum and female's at the other end, and so maybe it's testosterone. But it turns out people are pretty idiosyncratic in the kinds of risks that they're willing to take. So someone who is quite happy to take financial risks may be completely unwilling to take physical risks. And what separates someone, what seems to distinguish whether someone's willing to take a particular kind of risk or not has to do with how they perceive the the benefit-risk ratio. So people, it's not that some people like risk per se, but they just perceive there to be greater benefits or greater risks. And that's, I think that's a really interesting and important insight when trying to understand sex differences and risk-taking. Because when you think about risks and benefits, these relate first of all to kind of material risks and benefits, but also to social or reputational risks and benefits. And when you live in a society that, you know, doesn't, you know, has double standards around certain kinds of risk-taking behaviours and, you know, doesn't necessarily allocate benefits completely even-handedly, you know, men and women aren't making their risk-taking calculations in the same kind of context. So, you know, one really obvious example of this is um, casual sex. So if you think about 
um, the risks and benefits for casual sex. For females, there's um, a risk of pregnancy uh, that doesn't exist for males. There's a greater risk of catching sexual disease. There's a greater risk of sexual assault. And there's a much lower likelihood of having an orgasm, at least based on studies that have been done in, with North American students who are like, you know, the, provide the sort of petri dish for looking at this kind of research in, in young young people, casual casual sex and so on. So women in these kind of casual hookup situations are much less likely to have an orgasm than, than men are, and they're less likely to enjoy the encounter as a result, which isn't that surprising. And then you think about the male perspective, well, they're much more likely to have an orgasm. Their reputation is likely to be enhanced rather than be impaired. Um, so it's really, and they have, you know, fewer physical risks. So it's really not the same kind of calculation that's being made. And you can take something similar into the into the work domain. So uh, some really interesting research done by Michelle Ryan, who's a professor at uh, Exeter University in organisational psychology, and she found she did a survey of uh, managers at a major consultancy firm, and she found that it wasn't. She did indeed find that women were less likely, less willing to take risks and make career sacrifices in for the workplace. But this turned out to be because they perceived there to be less likely to be benefits from that because they were less likely to see their organisation as being um, a meritocracy. They felt that they had less support. Uh, and they could see fewer role models sort of succeeding. So, again, they were making those career decisions around what kind of risks to take and what sacrifices to make for their career, but they were making them in a different kind of environment. And when we start to look at these overlaps and complexities of sex difference and risk-taking, we start to see that it doesn't really make sense to start thinking about testosterone as causing them. So, you know, if someone is likely to be a – someone who's a physical risk-taker isn't – going to be a, necessarily going to be a financial risk taker, then, you know, what kind of risk taker do we expect someone with high testosterone to be? Do we expect them to be a physical risk taker or do we expect them to be a financial risk taker? Because chances are they aren't going to be both. And the other point is that sex differences in risk taking, you know, sometimes they don't exist in the first place, but even when they do exist, they're much, much smaller than sex differences in testosterone which shows that there's just no simple relationship between the absolute level of testosterone circulating in the blood and, and risk-taking behaviour. Otherwise, we'd see much, much larger differences. And this really fits with what we know about the link between testosterone and behaviour, which is it's just one, even in this in the sort of system, the neuroendocrine system, the absolute level of testosterone in the blood is just one of many factors in a very complicated system. And then even that system itself is, again, just one of many, many factors that feeds into decision making. And so testosterone isn't in ourselves this really powerful driver of behavior, actually not in other animals either. It's one of many factors. It can often be overridden by uh, factors relating to status, for example. And also, testosterone responds to situations. So rather than a behavior being kind of testosterone fueled, situations or behaviors can be testosterone fueling. So testosterone isn't always the cause. It can sometimes actually be this kind of middleman for the effect of the environment or the situation on our hormonal state that can help, then help us facilitate us to behave in particular kinds of ways, but not in this sort of overriding, determining kind of way.
Well, just one more question from me then, and I wanted to I wanted to finish off with a sort of are you hopeful for the future type question. At the beginning of this book, there's an epigram from um, We Should All Be Feminists. Says, I believe deeply in the ability of human beings to make and remake themselves for the better, which I presume you agree with as you chose it. But also, I presume that was probably chosen in a world where the most powerful man in the world wasn't a boastful sexual assaulter. <laughs> yeah, so, well, that's this is the problem with the lead time with books, um, that, yes, at the time it was thought, yeah, Clinton's in, yeah, so how things can, how things can surprise us. Um, look into my crystal ball of the future. Look, I think I do like to be optimistic, and the reason I chose that beautiful quote is because I really want to get us away from this idea that it's in our evolutionary history, it's in our genes, it's in our hormones. So however much we might want us to see a sort of very different, more equal society, you know, intrinsically maleness is about being Trumpish, you know, and that's we can't really to try and fight that is going against nature and it's a real struggle. So I, I think that quotation really captured this idea that we, uh, that testosterone rec story is not supported by the science and we can make and remake ourselves. Uh, not that that, uh, as I sort of say in the book, not that that's a very simple task either because, you know, there's the, the richness of, you know, the gendered culture and how many things uh, need to change in order for things to shift is a bit overwhelming. But, you know, we know from history, and this is where the optimism comes in, as you mentioned before, you know, how things have changed in just 100 years. Um, obviously, you have to be heading in the right direction. But, you know, I like to think that overall, despite the occasional hiccup, <laughs> we are moving in the right direction. Well, I think that's a, a positive point for us to finish on, and we need all the positivity we can get at the moment. So, uh, I've been talking to Cordelia Fine. We've been talking about testosterone wrecks and making the myths of our gendered minds, which is it's out now from Icon Books. Cordelia, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you. Now it's a pleasure. <laughs> Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Nikki Hudson is a journalist, broadcaster and author living in London. She regularly contributes to The Guardian, Vice and The Telegraph on civil liberties and consumer issues, sex and the law and gender politics. She writes for US women's mag Bustle.com on US politics, social policy and health and was for some time the men's health sexual adventurer columnist. Nikki is a regular commentator on BBC Radio 2's The Jeremy Vine Show, BBC's Radio 5 Live and BBC Radio 4's Woman's Hour. And she's made a documentary on the ethics of porn for BBC Radio 4. She's the author of Bound to You, a BDSM memoir, and now The Curious History of Dating, which we're going to talk about today. Nikki, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thanks, Neil. Tell us what the idea behind The Curious History of Dating is then. It pretty much does what it says on the tin. It is a proper social history of how people have got it on through the centuries. Admittedly, not every country and not from the dawn of time, because that would just be more than a lifetime's work, but from Jane Austen's time, because that's when dating started to look like something we would recognise now. Yeah, so what did people do before? Because that's the thing, isn't it? Because obviously there was a time when getting together with a with a partner was more of a sort of a contract over property or something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it was really the Enlightenment that changed, started to change people's perceptions of what was possible out of relationships. You know, that was the, the first time people had started to discuss the idea, not just of women's rights, but of women as people with you know passions and interests of their own and mental capacity to think for themselves. And so I think that opened up a dialogue and caused people to reimagine marriage. At the time that I start the book, it's important to remember that women didn't have inheritance rights. So, you know, whatever was coming through down the family wouldn't go to them. It would go to a brother or it'd go to their husband. So um, even their children were the property of their husbands. So it was really important that they made a good match, not with somebody who was going to be a cad, but somebody who was going to really look after their long-term prospects. That's kind of the point at which I'm starting from. I was also quite surprised to discover that even at that time, the 18th century, so the Jane Austen era, people are starting to use something that looks like a Lonely Hearts ad. Yeah, absolutely. The Georgians basically invented Lonely Hearts ads. The kind of perception we get of the Georgian era is obviously related to the middle classes, the upper classes, and their ability to have coming up out balls and debutante season and um, to really kind of throw themselves into the social scene in their pretty luxurious country neighbourhoods. But for the majority of people, especially on the lower end of the scale, probably the social scale that Jane Austen was coming from, there just wasn't the money. So they resorted to, yeah, using personal adverts. And there were these matrimonial gazettes that were circulated around Britain. The way you placed an advert was to send a trusted male envoy to one of the coffee houses in London, which were obviously dens of iniquity during the Georgian period. And then what they would do for you is set up a mailbox and they, you would be reliant on them to sort of ferry the messages back and forth. Obviously, if you were a guy, you could just place them yourselves in the coffee houses. But that's what lots and lots of people did. I mean, there were thousands of these adverts. So if you were at one of these dances that was organised where people would not exactly meet but be present at the same time. You obviously just couldn't walk up to somebody and start talking to them. So this elaborate system of flirting with fans happens that you talk about. How did that work? 
Yeah, so they did, the Georgians at, at Balls had what they called a phonology. It was a code. So uh, depending on where you held the fan on your body or how you fluttered it, uh, fast, slow, there were other kind of permutations that sent out a specific message to a potential suitor in the room. And uh, the real thing was that you couldn't, seen to be taken if you weren't you know all the people at these balls were really just trying to get the lay of the land not different really to the way people are in a bar on a Friday night you know that you don't sort of set your sights on someone too quickly you just kind of like look at see what's going on that's what they would have done and the other thing is that for the women they had to be there with chaperones so if they wanted to kind of show their interest in the guy they needed to kind of get past the chaperone so I think some of the fanning was you know it was a bit of a ruse to kind of get around the people that were keeping an eye on them obviously eventually everybody would have kind of figured the code out and I think there were books published with the code in but you know it's a bit like the way that teens use slang now and, and uh, their parents have to go and find out the meanings I think the the older people present at the ball wouldn't necessarily have known what the younger people were doing so let's move into the um, into the early Victorian era and an era obviously that we tend to think of as being repressed and buttoned up but to begin with the general public had the role models of Victorian Albert themselves who were very much in love yeah, apparently. I mean, that, we know that Victoria was absolutely obsessed with Albert and she had asked him to marry her. So that was a really significant relationship in terms of setting the tone for the rest of the country. It's sort of, you know, the way that William and Kate and Harry are we take a lot of interest in them in the press, but we don't look to them to set the standard of behaviour. So it's kind of mad, hard to imagine what that would have been like. But, you know, what the royal family did really dictated what everybody else thought was OK to do. So it was actually quite a significant thing. And, you know, it was a, it was a love marriage. There were lots of love letters that were passed between them. And there came into law, you know, this clause where women could start to inherit their own property. And there was a poor law, which it was used to try and fine women who were single for getting pregnant. So the, there was a kind of new push to have marriage. And at the same time, the Victorians started, you know, they created the myth of romantic marriage because people had, you know, could now stop worrying so much about having to secure up the family fortune and how it had been, uh, you know, passed on to other people. When do things start to change? And obviously, Albert doesn't hang around for very long but also things do become definitely although it's sort of a bit of a myth to think of the Victorian era as as repressed as like you know modern depictions of it show but at the same time it was still there was definitely a change in moors to a, a more repressive society than a, than had gone before even so when do things start to change well, I think that was really once the Industrial Revolution had kicked in and people started to panic about things like working class women being in close quarters with men. You know, women had always, working class women had always worked, but the fact they were going into factories and into towns, it just changed the dynamic between men and women and how much contact they had with one another. And people were living in cramped housing, STIs were rife. So there were all these kinds of like social health issues. And once they started to be reported on, obviously, there was a kind of puritanical backlash, which was really about, it seems misguided now, but in its essence, it was really about trying to protect people, I think. At the same time, of course, at the end of the 19th century, you had the new woman, you had the suffragette movement, you had all, you know, you kind of had women's burgeoning rights, and that upset a lot of people. But interestingly, the suffragettes were actually very conservative around sex. They didn't support the new love movements. They were not keen on women having multiple relationships. They themselves policed other women. But, you know, it was the time of the music hall. So you could, as a woman, you could go out and drink. 
I think they even introduced, they even tried to introduce um, a sort of singles night on a Thursday in one of the famous Canterbury music halls. But uh, it ended up just being a kind of like full on infidelity club for people. So that that was kind of kiboshed pretty quickly. But there were other things like the Victorians, the middle classes would use going to tea as actually an invitation to go and have casual sex in the afternoons. And um, there was public nude bathing in Victorian England. And the men and the women would be on separate beaches, but they would all have binoculars looking at each other. So there, there, I found out all these like amazing facts when I was researching this book that really definitely challenge, you know, we love to kind of wrap up decades and state that they had a, a really set uh, attitude to sexuality. And it's always far more fluid than that and far more complex. But how do things change as the century changes and we get into the, the Edwardian era? And as you said, there's the sort of beginnings of the uh, the women's movements as well. But, you know, how do social mores start to loosen up as we go towards the 20s? Yeah, well, I mean, there was the Playboy Prince, Bertie, Victoria's son, who was just a complete party animal and... He hosted many of the buccaneer brides who were these women that had come over from uh, the east coast of America with loads of money looking for titles because the aristocracy was in decline. Lots of people were running out of money. So there was a kind of trade off. And um, his social circle was widely reported on in the press. So there was definitely that. And then, of course, there was the First World War, which was just seismic, you know, in its effect on what people got up to mainly not just because of losing so many men in the war which was significant for the 20s but the fact that women no longer had chaperones there were no chaperones to go around and but they they literally vanished overnight so imagine trying to imagine from you know being policed all the time to having nobody watching what you were getting up to that would have just been incredible well, I wanted to move us on to how both of the wars changed the sort of social structures and, and the way people met. And so you've mentioned the First World War, so let's move on to the, the Second World War. And, you know, here's like London in a blackout. How are people meeting during this time? Uh, well, very easily. The writer Quinton Crisp called wartime London one massive double bed. And he has loads of chronicles about people just getting it on wherever they see fit. There was... So not only was a great movement of people and great proximity of them, but there were loads of soldiers that had come over to Britain, not just the GIs, not just from America, but Canadian soldiers, Italian soldiers. And the women were getting it on with them because they wanted to have a good time. And yeah, it would have, you know, as happened in the First World War, lots of people made these so-called hasty marriages. They would literally meet and marry sometimes within a 48 hour period. And people were just seizing the moment because they really didn't know if the person that had left to go to war was going to come back. And they didn't want to wait. It's another 20 years, though, until the 60s, the invention of the pill and the period of time of free love that we tend to, to think is when the sort of permissive society starts. But there must have been that change in society after the Second World War itself must have sown the seeds for that, right? Oh, definitely. I think we really have a sort of misperception of how liberal the 60s were. There was a lot of conversation among the elite and in London, but the rest of Britain really just carried on the same way. Even with the availability of the pill, that was initially given to married women. So most women in Britain couldn't get that until the 70s. Even my mother, who married my father quite young at 17, remembers going to the doctor and asking for the pill and then refusing it because she was engaged, not married. There's also, I mean, I think we tend to look back on the era of the pill as being something that freed women and, and meant that, you know, women could 
basically go out and fulfill their lives more. But in a lot of ways, you know, social attitudes didn't change at that time. So realistically, the pill was much more of a benefit for men who wanted to have a lot of casual sex than it was for the other way around. I think it was, because traditionally men had always taken responsibility for contraception. And it's something we kind of forget when we talk about it. We see the Pill as empowering women to take charge of their own reproductive rights, which it has done to a certain extent. But up until that point, men were very careful about condoms. You know, lots of people use condoms from the end of the 19th century. It wasn't that we all of a sudden had contraception, which is, I think, how it sometimes portrays in the press and, and in popular history. But, you know, people, yeah, I don't think people's lives changed in Britain as significantly as we imagined them to. I think it was much more gradual because it was then in the 70s that we started having more liberal publications around sex. We had Forum magazine. There were debates in Parliament about swinging. You know, there was all kinds of mad stuff going on in the 70s. There was a publication of The Joy of Sex. And also the availability of alcohol, which you could buy for your own home. And that sounds like a really small thing, but having wine in your house, you know, a weekend definitely changed people's kind of social interactions, brought in the dinner party. And then there was, of course, the invention of package holidays. That was the 60s. And they started to really take off in the 70s. Um, and 18 to 30s holidays started at this time. So foreign travel and alcohol. And I think the 70s actually was probably more significant than the 60s in that way. It's also the time when feminism, as we would recognise it today, starts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the publication of something like Spare Rib really did change the conversation, even though it wasn't necessarily widely circulated, um, as did Jackie magazine, which was actually very loosely feminist in its way when you read through it. But I think the other things that really helped were the economic how kind of like economics was improved for women in terms of the law. There was more disposable income. Women had better employment contracts. Women in the 70s, they couldn't in the 60s, but in the 70s, they were beginning to be able to have their own credit cards and have mortgages. So those things were very significant to giving women concrete practical rights. We're heading now to think of the permissive 60s and into the 70s being brought to a halt in the 80s by AIDS. Yeah, I think there were a few factors in the 80s. It's really interesting reading through magazines of the time because I had never really appreciated it being born in the 80s, but AIDS really terrified straight people as much as gay people. People like Paulie Yates, who used to write for Cosmopolitan, you know, wrote a huge piece warning people off casual sex, unprotected sex. And it's kind of, you can't really imagine that now. And you can't really imagine it knowing what she, you know, when then went on to do and her reputation after. But it was really, really significant. And I think the other thing is that people were working ridiculously hard in the 80s. So their focus had sort of come off sex in a way. I think people were ready to just kind of like focus on other things. And um, yeah, it definitely changed the conversation about whether it was okay to have casual or sex or not. And I don't think it's been quite the same since. I think the 90s opened up a bit again, and now we're in a slightly more conservative dip. So I don't think we'll ever go back to that era of casual sex the way it was in the 60s, 70s. Well, I was going to say, obviously, now we live in an era of internet dating and, and phone apps and Tinder and what have you. But... It does seem like the young people today are more conservative than, than they were. Yeah, they definitely are. I mean, I do a lot of work with the dating industry and I'm privy to quite a lot of data about it. And um, younger people, younger like younger millennials are much more conservative in terms of what they'll share. You know, we hear these horror stories about them all kind of sharing naked pictures of each other. And, but the facts are that they have fewer STIs. They're waiting longer to have sex. They're more interested in marriage and committed relationships. So, yeah, they don't drink as much, they don't take as many drugs. I'm quite optimistic about the level of care younger people seem to put into their relationships and what they want out of them. 
that's interesting into into my next question because I was going to ask, does internet dating and things like Tinder make dating too easy? But probably not. I think it's made it harder than ever, to be honest. I used to be a dating coach in Silicon Valley and I used to write that column for Men's Health magazine. And what has really struck me, and even when I've been talking about this book to people, is that people are desperate for dating advice. And what they want is rules. People are desperate for rules. And it struck me when I was writing this is that every generation has had its own rule books, its own etiquette guides, and its own strictures around how you could approach people. Even in the 60s, you would often go to a date's home where their parents would be to pick them up and you would meet the parents and And what that would do is even if the relationship didn't work out further down the line, it made people more accountable. And I've always, you know, I was brought up by 60s liberals and I've always considered myself very open minded. But I'm beginning to sort of see that people would do better with a few more rules and a few more um, a few more things that would make them accountable to their potential partners. Case in point is that new dating apps are holding back from using Facebook for verification when you create a profile. So at the minute, if you if you're on Tinder or something, you have to link it back to your Facebook profile. And the idea is that will verify who you are, which will reassure everybody around you. But we all know that you can make up lots of things on Facebook. You know, it's not actually um, tied to your legal identity. So what lots of people in the dating world now are doing are checking against something like LinkedIn, which is a professional profile. And apparently one app in particular has told me that they find people behave better because they know that their data has come from LinkedIn where they're a working person and they have a certain reputation in you know their profession and in the community. Just to finish off then, I was going to ask about dating in the future, but perhaps we should look at it through the perspective of post-Brexit Britain, further and further right-wing America. How are things going to be in two years' time? Where's this going? Yeah, well, it's interesting. The thing is, and having studied this book, you know, like in the event of war, there's far more sex. So if there is a World War Three, we're all good. That's why I always tell people um, the more social turmoil there is, the more people tend to cling to one another. So I don't think that I don't think that will make any difference. I read a ridiculous article yesterday saying that Brexit will be good for the marriage rate, basically blaming like us joining the European uh, Union for the reason why we become lax in our relationships, which doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And there's absolutely no evidence to support it. Um, And conservatives always hope that people cling to one another during times of, you know, turmoil. But people just get very inventive. I I think the reality is that marriage is at its lowest rate since 1895. And the glorious thing now is that people can choose to get married, but they don't need to be married, you know, especially for women. Once upon a time, if you were to be seen, you know, as a decent woman in society, you absolutely had to be married and, you know, to have a house, to have property, uh, to have a job, that all these things matter and they don't now. And that's really, you know, it's a really important step and a really positive step. But I do think we'll see marriage go up again. We certainly know that people are continuing to have children. They don't, they don't, that doesn't seem to affect them outside of wedlock. So yeah, I'm not, I don't think the conservative naysayers are going to be too pleased with themselves yet. I've been talking to Nikki Hodgson. We've been talking about her book, The Curious History of Dating, which is out now from Little Brown. Nikki, thanks so much for telling me about it. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.